0: Father, it's hard to see time pass so quickly and to have so many desires and dreams and ambitions that we want to accomplish and reach out to and we always fall short. But it's great to know you, to have eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ, and to realize that we have all of eternity to see those dreams and visions fulfilled in you. We have your word before us, Father. This is a precious book. Been preserved for us through great effort, a lot of physical sacrifice, and even death. We ask you to help us not to take it for granted. And not to just open it on Sunday morning. That if we really love you, as the song just said, that we would seek after you. Desire to know you better and better. To appreciate you Whether we are emotionally into the picture or physically um, feeling well, that we can focus on you and know that you never change. So thank you for this time. Open your word to us. Change us, Father. Make us more like your son, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're once again having the opportunity and the privilege to get into God's word. Never, ever want to take that for granted. My prayer, and as I talk to God over this week and every week, is that when you come to a sermon like this, you don't pre-read it. How many read ahead of time? You're slipping. You're expecting me to do all the work? You're not going to remember. Thank you for being honest. It is critical that you're in the Word for yourself. Don't depend on me. And you better check me out. You're not only reading beforehand to get a basic idea of what's there, you're reading afterward, and it is a treasure. What I'm finding as I interact with people is a lot of people don't mind going into the mine to seek out the gold, but when they find it, they want it to look like rings, <laughs> necklaces, bracelets. You know, they just want it prepackaged because that's what America wants today. They don't want to have to take a hammer and, and beat on rocks and risk their lives, and then to have to pull it out and extract it in a variety of methods. And so it concerns me as I get old and decrepit and see my um, sun setting in some ways, um, that I'm not leaving behind some others that are spiritually able to mine for themselves. So you may have read this, the few of you that did, and realized, boy, this is kind of boring. And this is my whole point. The Scriptures, you never open up the Bible anywhere and find it boring. If it's boring, you're being lazy. You're not checking it out. You're not taking time to really examine what it's saying and to meditate on it and to seek out what God is telling us to do with it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. And so the passages of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 should be life-changing. You should never, ever come to a service and walk away the same if you spend time in the Word of God. It's an impossibility. So if you're not even reading five minutes or three minutes of my message beforehand, it concerns me of what you're doing the rest of the week. And you think, well, it's just life's busy. It always will be. You're going to use up 24 hours a day no matter what you're doing. What's important to us is what we're going to spend time on. We're going to make time for And so enough of a lecture from Pastor Jack. But I'm serious. These days are not getting easier. They're getting worse. And if you're getting flabby spiritually, you're in big trouble. Real big trouble. And I go off on some stories I heard shared this week about people in China, just for attending church, or worse yet, sharing their faith, are persecuted severely to the death And uh, I'm afraid we need some of that. And it's more and more what I'm asking God to do. Bring it to America. The church is flabby, and there's a lot of people in it that are phony. And so as we look at this passage, he's trying to bring up some of this. We looked last week, the Holy Spirit has gifted the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 11. He's He's gifted the church to exalt Jesus Christ, but also to edify believers. And so these Corinthian believers are not lacking. Look back at chapter 1. I've mentioned this, but I didn't have you read it. Look at chapter 1. They're not lacking in any of the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians one six. jumping in the middle of it here, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'd think, well, that can't be. This church is pathetic. This church is so carnal and childish And selfish, there's no way they have all the gifts. Well, that's what he says right there. See, we think the gifts are only bestowed on certain people of certain intellect or certain ability, or have earned it, or have prayed for three hours, then God gives them the gift. That's not how it works. Look what he says here. As he describes this one body in verse 12, he says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is God. Christ. He goes in from the one spirit who's put it together and given out these gifts to the one body that he creates. And he compares it in two ways here. From the human body that has many members, many parts, many limbs, many organs, the the breakdown of the human body, which one of them is not important? (laughs) That's where it got its name, the appendix, but they found out They don't have to take it out. Don't take it out. Very critical. Hooked right on to the colon. Many great uses. But in our ignorance, we think, well, that's not doing anything. And so they take it out. The same thing with the tonsils. You notice that children are not automatically having their tonsils taken out when they're five years old, six years old, because it's really easy then and they love ice cream. Why? Because they found out they're useful. I didn't get mine taken out until I was 27. And it's because they started working for the other side. They tried to close up one day. That was not a good idea. When there's a need, we deal with it. Gallbladders or whatever it may be, even a portion of your brain would have to deal with it if it's out of whack. But the body has many members and all of them, although there are many, are one body. They work together in perfect unison. A coordinated machine. And so as he's bringing out here the fact that we're unique as individual members, but we are united as an interconnected orchestra. It's kind of the picture he's putting together. And if you like music and you like orchestras, you really appreciate it when all the sounds come out in perfect balance. You have a a composer that's put it together the right way and a director who's bringing it out and quieting down some to bring out others. And that's how you want your human body to work, isn't it? When it doesn't, what do you say? Ouch. Help. You call for someone to come help you. You get something done by doctors, which is getting more and more difficult these days. They're limiting so many things of what can and cannot be done and who pays for it. But the human body is critical that we understand this fearfully and wonderfully made, many parts, totally united, connected, organized, unified as cells, and not one of them is unnecessary. Because when they are unnecessary, what happens to them? They are removed. If a cell in your body dies, if it's on the skin, it's able to flake off. If it's inside, it is removed. It is broken down and taken away. And your body goes through that process every seven years. Except for the brain and the sexual organs, it, every cell in your body is changed every seven years. Kind of like churches today. If you don't like this one, you go down the street and find another one. The only problem is you're not perfect You're not a brand new cell. You're not in a perfect position to help that church. You come in there with all of your problems because you didn't like the last place you were at. I don't like that body. I moved to another body. What if we were allowed to do that with physical bodies? (laughs) You could be like a doctor of change. You want to switch something out? You you go find a doctor who has all kinds of hair options for you. You know, you got women that hate straight hair. you got women that hate curly hair. You hate some women hate no hair. Go to the doctor of change. He'll fix that for you. Somebody comes in with straight hair and the other one curly, they switch them out. How long do you think it'll take before they're back asking them to switch it back? Because, yeah, seven years. Because yes, <laughs> seven years. Because they'll realize that's not what the problem is. Your body has been designed by God. The Holy Spirit put it together we saw it last week, and it's it's perfect. You should be able to look in the mirror and say, Thank you, God, for every last element of my body my size my looks my limitations god did that but he's done the same thing in the in the spiritual body the body of christ and what he's trying to bring out here it's just like it in this way making a comparison is christ the messiah the anointed one his church his body it's made up of believers, many members, spiritually united, connected, organized, unified as believers. That's what he's trying to bring up here. And we're, we're in the business of trying to change it out all the time. We're always trying to find something better instead of saying thank you for what he's made. And appreciating it. And watch how God is working. So he explains this a little bit when he gets down to verse 13. And he uses an interesting word that isn't found in most of your Bibles. There's supposed to be a Chi, or often translated and, a, and d, at the beginning of verse thirteen. Anybody have that in their Bible? It's in the Greek. They left it out, and it's actually emphatic here. It's opening verse thirteen up, and it can be translated indeed as he carries off of verse twelve, or in fact, for by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. He says this is what's describing the body of Christ and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And everybody jumps all over that. And they think, well, here's here's the final explanation here. All baptism is, if you put one word in your brain, to explain baptism, whenever you see it in the Bible, is simply identification. Because you see it used figuratively and literally. This is not water baptism. That would be a, a literal use. But it's the same word. And the the form of the word here means to immerse. So if you're immersing something physically like in water, it's water baptism. And you're publicly testifying of what God has done to you on the inside by your public testimony. That's all it is. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change you. It's just a declaration. And I often illustrate it. It's like a can of corn without a label. And so you, when you're baptized, put the label on the can of corn and you tell everybody, I'm corn." I'm a child of Christ. You don't become one because of it. You're simply declaring to them, I'm putting the label on so the whole world will know who I am. The same idea here is this is spiritual baptism. This is not. It has nothing to do with salvation or with water. It is simply describing the relationship where we have been placed into the body of Christ. We have been immersed into the body of Christ. Who does that? What's it tell you here? Four by one Spirit. See, if you'd read this ahead of time and spent a few minutes thinking about it, you would have seen that right off. The Spirit does that in the body. This is His role. How much do we have to do with it? This is a passive. You have nothing to do with it. You find churches that are made up of the whole idea of coming forward and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then they want you to speak in tongues to prove that. It has nothing to do with Scripture. It's only confusing people. It's giving them a false idea of what God has done. The Holy Spirit baptizes passive everyone. He places them into the body of Christ. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free. Whether, whatever your birth or nationality is, whatever your status, socially, your class, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit takes them and unites them together into the body of Christ. But he uses two ideas here. We're all baptized into one body placed into that body, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into us. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. He comes and takes up residence in us as children of God. We are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. You heard that phrase? So we're to glorify God with our bodies? We have responsibility of what we do there. Those are the two things he's trying to bring out in verse 13. The example of of the body of Christ is just like a human body, and he explains that. But then he goes into the explanation here. Identification takes place when we're all baptized. And literally the word here, made to drink, is to irrigate. Sorry, so I had to put that on. Because that's what it's describing. But it's the idea of you irrigating or drinking or receiving, taking in something spiritually speaking, which is Christ. Now I know that's just change your life when I can close in prayer and, and you'll go out of here just like new, new creatures, just growing like crazy, right? What difference do these words make? What effort, what responsibility do I have to get myself into the body of Christ? None. What am I told to do as an as a unsaved sinner? It's to simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to place my faith in him. I don't, when I'm doing that, I haven't run into any yet, who say, oh, please, by the way, could you also place me into the body of Christ? I, I don't want to be a lone ranger. I don't want to be hiding out here all by myself. I don't want to be separated from everybody else. Could you do that? Where's the Bible to even bring that up, that that's your responsibility? And yet churches and droves are teaching this to people. Have you received the second blessing? That's not from Scripture. See, we think we can just maintain our position and kind of hide out and hold on because Christ is coming back and he'll he'll free us up from all of this. We have a responsibility to make disciples. And I don't care what church they go to or what cult they're involved in. We have a responsibility to witness and to share with them. And if they're sidetracked by issues that aren't biblical, if they're so wrapped up in their church services that everything's about the Holy Spirit and some kind of form of evidence of speaking in tongues or rolling in the aisles or barking in the Spirit or whatever it may be, I have a need to share the gospel with them. They're sidetracked. They're distracted by a human thing that's been made by man and they're neglecting the spiritual thing that's been offered by God. Does that make sense? That's why these, this passage is so critical and it explains why he has to take all this time after next week in chapter 13 to explain love to them. You would think they're all believers. They have all the gifts. What's wrong with them? He doesn't waste long until he gets into chapter, into chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3. He says, you're just a bunch of babies living on milk. You're not growing up. So the question I ask you this morning is, how are you doing? I skipped all that to get to chapter 12 just to cover this series. But it's still true. Are you a baby Christian? Do you know anything about the Word of God? I went online looking up some things from a a church that I wanted to find out more about. A, A gentleman that I had sat with in seminary. In classes, it's well known. He's on the radio. If I mentioned his name, you would know who he is. Happened to go to the same class 35, 40 years ago in seminary. And somebody said something about him and his church, which is gigantic. And I went, okay. So I went looking it up. It's the first thing I always look for when I look up a church. Doctrine statement. Couldn't find one. Looked, looked, looked. Nothing where they would take a stand. I talked to a friend of mine, and I said, man, this guy's almost coming across like Joel Osteen. And he says, he is a disciple of Joel Osteen. I went, what? He went to the same seminary I went to. He heard all the same truths. What's going on? So I went on there, and they had a question and answer section in this online thing, website that was gigantic. And I started going through some of the questions, and I went, when they got to the hard questions, whoever's answering, because it's not the main pastor, it's too big. They said, "Well, you have to, you'll have to talk to him about that." They wouldn't even give a stance on some things that people within their church are asking. They, they wouldn't stand. They wouldn't give them any direction scripturally. Why would you? Why would you do that? Because your goal is build your church, not God's church. Make everybody come in comfortable. Don't pick on any particular um, doctrine. Aspects or whatever they want to do, let make them all comfortable. Just come on in. In fact, it was so seeker friendly, I was shocked. They were inviting the homosexuals, lesbians, others to come on in and check us out, join our Bible studies, be a part of us. You know what that does to a church? Totally dilutes it. What are you going to focus on? What are you not going to talk about in a Bible study? What if you get into a passage in 1 Timothy 1 or, or Exodus or Leviticus 18, which we study in all the time, Leviticus 20. You get into some passages that talk about homosexuals. What are you, you going to talk about when you get to that with those people sitting there? You might skip it, water it down, come up with excuses. And I've heard it from homosexuals. As long as they're monogamous, God blesses the relationship. And I kind of went, what? No, no, God says it's an abomination to me. What difference does it matter if I'm a non- monogamous or not? It's clear in Scripture, and so I come along, and as so long as somebody needs the Lord, I'm not saying I come up there and start beating them with my 10-pound Bible. But neither do I invite them into to the, the flock. It's like, like sitting there with a shepherd and going, come on, wolves, come on in. Oh, you bears over there, you guys, yeah, you need, you need to become a sheep too. Come on in. What happens to the sheep? At least deluded and possibly eaten. You can't do that with the word of God. This is why God is so clear when he lays out scripture. We don't like to read it because it doesn't say things that we're comfortable with. I don't like that, God. Could you make it go away? His answer is, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know it bothered you so much. Yeah, let's rewrite that. He's telling the truth. He is unchanging. He is holy. He is just. He he does not water down anything. He cannot lie. All of God is fixed. And people want to come along and they want to manipulate God. They want him made out of clay rather than the rock. So they can change and manipulate and reshape or take parts away. And the danger here is God is making it really clear. It's God who has set up the body. It's God who has given out the gifts. You don't seek the gifts. It's not your responsibility. It's God who is baptized into one body, all peoples, when they come to know Jesus Christ. And it's God who places his spirit into them. He causes them to, be, to drink of the spirit. That's pretty straightforward to me. So why are so many people so sidetracked? And why are they so uncertain that they go back over and over and over again, even just to an altar call? They keep going forward because they don't know. That's because of one or two things. Either they never came to Christ in the first place, which is going to be the majority. Uh, Matthew 7, 21 to 23 says that. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, cast out demons, perform miracles, prophesied in your name. And he'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. These are a lot of your Tell evangelists on TV, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. See, that's the reality of what's out there. But for some reason, we kind of want to get in our own little cocoon and hide out. I'm not confrontational. Well, then you've got a problem. Because when Jude tells you in verse 3 to contend earnestly for the faith, who's he talking to? Only the few of us that are confrontational? When you go back and study scripture and you analyze every single individual who followed Christ, from Abraham to whoever it may have been, they all ran into confrontations. You notice that? Christ wasn't crucified because somebody was having a bad day, he's crucified because of what he stood for. He told them the truth. He was honest with them. He loved them and he revealed to them what was out there. The churches, many today are wanting you to cover up that the the river has a waterfall and it drops 500 feet down to the rocks. Oh, let's pretend that's not there. They'll feel much better until they go over. Then what? Well, they'll have a great time going down because you can hear them screaming. Just these excitement and adrenaline rush. Then what? And they die on the rocks. Whose fault's that? Ultimately, nobody will go to hell who, who didn't understand because God reached out to everyone. The Holy Spirit convicts the whole world concerning sin, righteousness, judgment. God has left himself, not left himself without witness. All the scripture's in there, but who's he given responsibility to? Who did he tell to make disciples? Us. How are we doing? Where are they? Where are your disciples? One of two problems again. I cannot make what I am not. I can, cannot reproduce someone that I'm not already. So you may not know Christ, and that would make a big difference. You can't make a disciple. But the second problem is I am, you guys are quiet again. I'm disobeying. I'm showing you what they're going to lead up to is I don't love my neighbors. I, I don't care about them. I especially don't love my enemies. I rejoice. I watch the news and go into the political realm for one thing. I want to see them fall. I want to find out when something's exposed or they caught on a live mic or, or, or they, um, their whole plan just destroyed. And we should never be rejoicing over unrighteousness. Proverbs brings that out. Rejoice not when your enemy stumbles, lest the Lord see it and he reprove you. That's not, we're we're not mockers. We're not standing there waiting for someone to fail. We are like Jesus Christ where we step in to make the difference and ultimately lay down our life to make that difference. I told you, when you open the scriptures, it's to change you. So I'm trying to make it clear what it's trying to say. He's not watering down and go, oh, this boring 1 Corinthians 12. He's saying some things that are amazing. They stand out as far as what God wants. Believers have been placed into one body, whether you like it or not. Which cell did you get put in as? Did you get your wish? I want it to be an I. I want it to be an ear. They, they really, they show, you know, and I could give me some um, op- opportunity and I'll shape the ear I want. I don't want them out too far, but I don't want them too flat either. I don't want them too big, but I don't want them too little. It, did you have opportunity to have vo- a voice in that? No. If, if you came to Christ, you're placed in. And if you're placed in and all you are is a, what would be a thing you wouldn't want to be? Toenail. All right, we got a toenail over here. What, what good is a toenail? You ever have one rip off? Do you miss it? And then if you rip, ripped off and it never came back, which happens to some people, how, how's your toe doing? What's it there for? It, it's there to, to color, right? You, you put <laughs> polish on it. You, you kind of trim it. And again, because you're trying to show off the toenail. See, they're they're still good, John. But you can't wear shoes. But if I took something and went in internally, you notice the no, the most vital parts of your body don't show. You can live without your eyes. You can live without your hearing. You can live without your taste. You can live without your touch. And you can live without your toenail. No, maybe that'd be more difficult. The, the, try living without your heart. Uh, try living without your kidney. Well, you could get rid of one of those. Let's say kidneys. Try to living without your liver. And you go into those things, and they're things that they don't, they don't show off. And when everybody, anybody ever exposes them, if you're in a biology class, and they're opening up the frog, and they're showing you all those parts, and they wait, they pith them so that they can open them, and the heart's still beating, and you can see everything working. You liked that class, didn't you? Poor frog. This is what he's trying to get at here. We're a bunch of complainers. God, why'd you make me like this? Who do you think you are? Why didn't you give me a showy position in the body? Hands, man, they are useful every day, all the time, 24 hours a day. Man, I'm doing something with my hands. I swat mosquitoes in my sleep, whatever it may be, but they're useful, and people notice them. But again, God, I don't want it too big, I don't want it too little. I want to make sure all five protrusions are there. I want the right kind of nails. You, you ever complained about your nails? <laughs> See, we do this all the time with the human body, and what we don't realize, we do it with the spiritual body. And so somebody comes into the church, and now I'm going to really get to the nitty gritties. And I look at them and I go, it took me two seconds. Sorry, it has nothing to do with visitors. You, you guys are exempt. <laughs> but it took me two seconds. As soon as they opened their mouth, or as soon as they told me what they did for a living, or as soon as they told me where they lived, or, or gave me some information, bleh, I'm done with you. You've never done that, have you? As soon as they didn't smell right, as soon as they didn't appreciate me, as soon as they talked too much. Can you imagine that, not liking somebody because they talk too much? <laughs> but we have these things. We, we do it. We all do it instantly. You're making instantaneous decisions with every single person you ever meet. I'll give you an example. And again, carefully because somebody's listening that's part of that example. But someone was being taken to the hospital by car and it got so bad they had to stop and call for an ambulance and in the ambulance between where they got picked up at the car and the hospital the person couldn't talk and the people in the ambulance started accusing them of things must be a drug addict must be this must be that well the person couldn't talk but they could hear and when they got to the hospital that information was passed on And so the hospital took them in the same way and did not look for the real cause of what was behind it because they thought they already knew. This is what we're doing in the church on a regular basis. See, what your reaction to somebody might be because you instantly, I don't like them and I don't want to be around them and I'm not inviting them over to my house. It it may simply be because they're not saved we get unbelievers coming in here. They think church is a place to be or they bring their children in or whatever it may be and so they're they're part of it. They may not be saved and so you're seeing their sinfulness. They're being real. They're being honest and we should appreciate the fact of of that truthfulness. As a pastor, I get lied to all the time. People want to be whatever they want to be. Put on some image, some front. But we have a reaction to that. So the first thing I have to realize, maybe they don't know the Lord. Secondly, I want to find out more about them and get to know them. So what did Jesus do with tax gatherers and sinners? Cast them off? No, he made friends out of them. Now, again, he wasn't in the church, and we have a different situation. He was out in the world, and this is where the church is to make a difference with unbelievers. As he walked along, there was a Zacchaeus in a tree, or there was whomever he came upon, and he reached out to them, knowing their needs, because he was God, and reaching out with the gospel to save them. But when you pull that back into the church, you dilute what God wants done here. My responsibility as a pastor is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. We're going to get into chapter 14. If an unbeliever enters in chapter 14, he's going to either be convicted by the scriptures prophesying, or he's going to think you're all messed up because you're all speaking in tongues. That's my paraphrase. So I have these decisions to make. And when I see somebody this week, and here's one of the changes you can make, and I'm instantly repulsed by something they're doing, how they act. They may just pick their nose in front of me. I was raised, thou shalt not. You always pick it in private. And then one of your kids will catch you picking your nose. And it's so humiliating. But we have these things that we react to with other people, whatever it may be. And I want to get on to 27 different topics here, and I can't. But, but he's trying to bring out the fact that it's the Holy Spirit that has taken a genuine believer, placed him into the body, and then the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the believer. That's all he's trying to bring out in verse 13. So look at the balance it provides. Verse 14. Thank you very much. For the body is not one member, but many So he gives you an example. If the foot should say, this is hypothetical, third class condition, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, is it not for this reason any less a part of the body? You guys appreciate your hands today? Anybody want to donate it to science? You got two of them. You can give them even the off hand, you know, if you're right-handed, give them the left hand. We don't do that. We don't choose to do that. They're valuable to us. We use them all the time. But if if I were to say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, because I'm just, I'm a heart. I'm tired of being a heart where nobody can see me. I'm tired of being a heart where they have the wrong diet and all they ever do is plug me up. Make it harder and harder to beat. How many times a day does it beat? It's about 100,000 times a day. You go, that can't be. Well, check your heart rate. Check it for a minute, multiply by 60, multiply by 24, and you will realize it is amazing, and it does that for how many years? It's amazing. God did that. It repairs itself while it's working. Man is constantly trying to figure out how to do that. And yet it's cursed, and you will die. And there's things about your body that are breaking down, breaking down, breaking down. That's God's blessing. So he didn't want us living forever in these cursed bodies. So he gave us an opportunity of how to have a new body through Jesus Christ. But, but here's the foot saying, ah, I'm a nobody. I'm not a hand. And then he says, well, just in case you didn't get that, verse 16, another hypothetical. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. It is, for this re- is it not for this reason any less part of the body? He, he's trying to bring out here the whole idea that you understand, that the body is balanced. Every part is significant. And he he brings out there in verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. This idea of significant number, a great multitude. They estimate approximately, give or take, depending upon your diet you're on, but physically 100 trillion cells in a human body. 100 trillion. What did it start with? One. That's pretty amazing. You try building something with a plan... Where you start with one thing and the blueprints show you how to do a hundred trillion of those and how they change as they come out a different way. That's the physical body. But the, the spiritual body is uncountable. That's what he's trying to bring out here. Uh, the, even as a body is one, it has many members. So he's bringing up, so also with Christ, he's trying to bring out the idea that it's uncountable. When you get to Revelation 7, and again, just to reflect, I, I have to get into Revelation whenever I can. Verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out to him. And it says there with a loud voice about salvation. But he says this great multitude that no one could count, beyond human ability, just like the stars, beyond our ability to count them all. And yet God calls them all by name. And so he's bringing out this idea spiritually. It's an it's uncountable number of people that are part of this body and yet the Holy Spirit assigns each one of them a special place in a special time. Now what you do with that, you can affect a lot. You can be the foot or the hand or whatever and say, I'm not working. If If you don't have a ministry in this church, if you attend regularly to this church, and you don't have a ministry in this church, You're disobeying. You are to be serving the body. Whatever your role is, heart cell, hand cell, eye cell, whatever it may be, you have a role to play. If you're trying to come in as a spectator, what are you going to get from Pastor Jack? Very good. Could you you say that louder? Lectured. When when do you need a lecture? When you are Disobeying. disobeying. My dad never lectured me for obeying him. And I was pretty obedient, but I got lectures. Sometimes they weren't my fault. We go into that some other day. <laughs> but he's trying to bring up here the whole need that we are many. That there's a, uh, and you're, you cannot humanly try to do that. The foot is used for standing, for walking, for running, for balancing. Movement is provided by our feet, it, but they need to coordinate info from the ear. And yet he switches over to the ear, and the, the ear is good for hearing, for dis- distinguishing sounds, for balance also, And brings in the comprehension as you take in that information, but it needs to transfer info to the foot. They're all interconnected, they're all balanced in this relationship, and it's critical that we understand that. We're never told to seek after spiritual gifts. Have I said that enough times yet? Because the church is teaching you, many churches are teaching you just the opposite. And you'll use that excuse well, I'm not a pastor. So I don't have to stand up in front of people and teach. Okay, well, what are you? You have a role to play. Th- this shut down ten percent of the cells in your body right now, kind of at random. In fact, as the church is, let's let's shut down eighty to ninety percent of the cells in the body. How you doing? <gasps> How does God see the church today? It's floundering. It's struggling because it isn't being what he's commanded it to be <coughs> and what he's provided for it to be, as the Holy Spirit did all of this. And so he gets down to verse 17, and he says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? This reminds me of, um, what's his name? Mike Wazowski. And he wasn't even a whole eye, although they kind of made him look like one. He just had a big eye right on the front. But if you carefully look at it, which I did on the Internet, he had arms and hands and feet. In a mouth. But if the whole body were just an eye, can you imagine the eyeball? What, what would it do? How would it move? How would it communicate? It could see really good. If my eye was this big, man, would I have vision. What would I do with it? I'd have to find a company that makes contacts that big. But he says, you wouldn't have the hearing, which is what he's contrasting. But if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? And you're, trying to, you're starting to get the picture of what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians. Quit elevating certain gifts and ignoring the others. It doesn't work that way. And then in the process, you start distorting them. This monstrosity of an eye or the foolishness of a big ear that does nothing. It reminds me of what cancer is. You understand what what cancer is? Malignant cancer. It can be one cell where it starts off. What's it trying to do? Take over. Just like this. If it's a cell out of your eye, it says, I want the whole body to be an eye. And the whole body says, go for it. That would be exciting. And so it starts invading. You ever seen time lapse on, on cancer? I saw one on an eye one time. Now, they weren't just letting it go. They were trying to figure out how to stop it. And they finally were showing you something they did find that they put on it, and the whole cancer retreated. It shut it down. Where those cures are today, I don't know. See, the world's overpopulated. They're not eager to come up with solutions because it's going to mean more people living longer. Part of why the medical world is struggling today. But he's trying to bring out the whole issue here. And he goes back to a first-class condition in verse 17. It's it's this reality assumed that this is the simple condition that the, the body has been taken over by one instrument. And this malignant cancer is simply describing mutiny, a disloyalty, out of control, one type of cell that goes berserk and takes over the whole body. And we fight it with everything we've got, if we can, or we die. Because it invades areas it's not supposed to be. So he gives out assignments in verse 18. God, but now God has placed the members, each one of them. And the word now there is at the present time. He's describing the Corinthian church at that moment. And he says that God has placed, he has assigned or appointed, he has arranged the members, each one of them, every single last cell in the body, just as he desired, as he wished, as was his goal. This master plan makes the church work the best. No Lone Rangers, no spectators, no homeless. You get that picture there? When you see interviews of homeless people, some of them are out there because they're mentally deranged. There's something wrong with them, maybe by drugs or just by physical means. And they're out of control. You can't help them in normal means. But the majority out there, you can talk to them and they'll say, I'm out here because I have no one telling me anything to do. I am free. I don't pay taxes. Nobody can tell me when to get up, when to go to bed, where to show up. I simply am master of my own destiny. Majority out there today. Then because they live that way, it starts affecting them. It's not so easy to eat when you don't work. It's really easy to pick up serious diseases when you're around a bunch of people that have serious diseases. It's really easy to get robbed or hurt or even killed by people who want what you have. And they don't care. It's not a safe world, and yet we're promoting it today. We're encouraging it today. We're giving out freebies to people, and we're making it worse and worse. Why do you think they're doing that? What does it ultimately do to people? It kills them. It leads them into destruction. You know, I just heard on the news this morning... of the world, of the um, poverty-stricken world, 1% has received the vaccine. I think that's kind of interesting. If you really care about people, if this vaccine is what you really need, if you don't want some of those people spreading it around, wouldn't you try to get it more spread out? Wouldn't you not use it politically or manipulate it in some way? And if you really cared about them, you might say, look at." I'll forego the vaccine and I'll give it to somebody else because they need it worse than me. I at least have medical care and doctors and hospitals and, and medicines that I could take care of myself with. So let's help the lower people. 1% of the world, they know, has not been vaccinated. What does that tell you? They don't love them. They're not interested in helping them. They may be saying we want them to go away. Sad. This is the whole thing with the body of Christ, what God is getting to, and what he moves into in chapter 13, is the issue. If you want to prove your disciple, love one another. The, the distinction between the child of God and the child of Satan, one of them is love in 1 John 3:10, clearly revealing who they are. That's what believers do. And so when you want to find out if somebody's really in the body of Christ, then you have to check out their love level if you want to put it that way, and sort that out and figure that out. And the only way to do that is under trial. The only way to do that is to God bring persecution in the United States. And it's coming. It's arriving. You're seeing more and more hatred for believers. More and more shutdown on the internet of people who are conservative in general, but believers particularly. It's what they do in China. It's what they do in Russia. It's what they do in Venezuela, Cuba. You start naming countries, they shut it down. It's the cure. Jesus Christ is the solution. He is the cure for spiritual cancer. And they shut it down. We don't want that cure. We don't want him telling us what to do. And so here you have the opportunity in the body of Christ if you really know him. To not say, I have no need of you, is an interesting word he uses there in verse 21. I have no use for you. That's one way to put it. But he's trying to bring out here that I am self-deficient. You can't help me. I'm superior to you. No one can say that in the body of Christ. Or for the feet to say, I have no need of you. On the contrary, and it's again a strong contrast, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem, they appear, we think them to be weaker. That somehow they exist in an inefficient, helpless impotent state and that the members of the body which seem to be that way are necessary they're indispensable which is where I came up with the word that's in your outline I can't believe I run out of time when I'm halfway and I know things that I want to cover But he says in verse 23, "...and those members of the body which we deem," using a form of the same word, we think, we imagine, uh, because they appear to us as being less honorable, they're disvalued or without honor, without any um, value to them. "...on these we bestow, we attach, or assign more abundant honor." extraordinary honor, extraordinary value and preciousness. And so when you think about when you're, if you're a soldier or you're a policeman or, or you're in some area where you're expecting someone to shoot at you, what do you protect? What did Paul use as an example in Ephesians 6? This, what? Breastplate of righteousness, which would have been their Kevlar of the day. And then the shield that's also protecting you. How's your back doing? There's nothing there. They didn't protect the back. You were not designed as a Roman soldier to be running away. You were designed as a Roman soldier to be attacking. You are superior. You take them down. And this is a, the whole struggle that people are going through here. We think what's less honorable, the heart, the lungs, is exactly what they protected because they knew they were vital to you. But the hands, look at my hands. Did you notice my manicure? Or is that a pedicure? No, pedicure or manicure? <laughs> I spent a lot of money on that. Sat there for hours. Trying to impress people. How about my makeup or, or my hairdo or lack thereof? We're trying to impress people by the clothes we wear and, and the things we talk about and who we know. And all of these things are worthless. And the, what's really valuable, we're pretending like, doesn't exist or doesn't matter. These indecent members come to have more abundant. Good appearance or seemliness of this high standing. They're very pleasing to look upon. Whereas our seemly members, the ones that we think have good appearance, have no need of it. They have have no use for it. And so he's trying to contrast this thing with a physical illustration and to bring out to them what their need is. Physically, there are many unhappy, jealous, rejecting human beings on planet Earth. They're discontented. They're envious. Uh, they constantly want to make alterations, whether it's hair, face, size, sex. You're seeing that. It's kind of the, reaching the epitome of that discontent. It's sad. You shouldn't look at someone who tries to, a man who tries to be a woman or a woman trying to be a man, without having pity. They're screaming out their need. Somebody help me. Do we hug them? Do we invite them over? I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about the home. Do we pray for them? Did we look for opportunities to reach out to them? I was watching a neat, or listening to a neat program on the radio yesterday, uh, the sports, uh, I forget even what the name of it is, but it's, it's across the country and it's spreading elsewhere, where they open up leagues for flag football and for soccer and for volleyball. And, and they said they have parents come in. They said for every child in the field, they'll get at least two to three spectators. And they try to reach out to them, they invite them to be a part of things. And this is not the church again. This is this is for outreach, what they're actually doing. And they'll have parents and dads who will come along and, and they'll say, well, I can't do anything. I'm not doing a devotional. I'm not going to coach. I'm not going to take an upfront role. But they watch and they get more involved with their kids and they're listening to them because they share truth with them. They share the gospel with them. And as they interact, this gentleman on the radio shared one story after another, after another, after another, where someone came to Christ. And they said, repeatedly said, I've never been in a group of people that care about you like this, that really love you. That's why the church is trying to bring them in. But you can't do that. You're watering down the church. You gather to be built up and to be edified. You scatter to share the gospel. And go scatter. I keep, you you know me, I'm I'm anti-Jack. I'm against closed closets. I'm against food pantries. I'm against housing the homeless. I'm against all of that. Because that isn't what this building is for. This building isn't the church. You are. You are. And the moment you start giving them handouts through an organization, what do they want? More. You will never satisfy that. I've given away clothes to people, but not in the name of Cascade Bible Church. I've given away money to people, usually not cash. But it's often with a long conversation, whether it's a tank of gas or, or it may be a bus ticket. I drove a guy into Bend one day sharing the gospel with him and got him on a bus, and there was, there was something else desperately wrong, but, and got him to Indiana or Iowa, somewhere back there, to his mom. But I shared the gospel and presented what I could with them. That's what we're to be doing in our lives during the week. To say that we're not evangelistic as a church is, doesn't happen on Sundays. I have been accused many times, picked on, for never giving an altar call. Why don't you share the gospel more often? Why don't you tell people? Because I don't expect the believers or non-believers to be here. I'm not talking to non-believers. I'm talking to you. But if I preach the word according to 1 Corinthians 14, and an unbeliever comes in, they will be convicted by that word. They know. The Holy Spirit's working on their heart. They know what their life's like and what's missing. They see the difference, but if they wander in here, they better see the love. Now, I'm going to really put you on the spot. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I want you to ask this. How many of you met our visitors today? How many walked up to them and introduced yourself, shook hands, and got to know them? Don't don't raise your hands. Just feel convicted. (laughs) I tell you this all the time. Who do you think is going to do it? Well, that's for the hand to do. I'm not a hand. I'm a liver. Really? What are their names? They were introduced this morning. Rachel and Anthony. But you cheated. You shouldn't have answered because that's your job. But I'm impressed that you know. But I want to find out how many of you know them. When they walk out of here, are you going to call them by name? Yeah. Yeah. I do this to all the visitors, so you, you, nothing special. Th- this isn't a social club, folks. This, this is the body of Christ that God's trying to prepare as his bride for his son. And it's like, why do I waste a week or even a day? Why am I not excited And what I'm looking forward to? It? It's just like you were before your wedding. Oh, it's a year away, so you didn't think about it at all, did you? And you spent umpteen dollars. It didn't matter that dad had to borrow half the money. Why was that wedding so important to you? You're going to live 40, 50, 60, 70 years. You may even reach an 80-year mark, what some people do. And then you're going to die. And in spite of what, I, what everybody wishes for, there is no marriage in heaven. You will have a closer relationship with your spouse in heaven than you have on earth. Uh, Send me cards and letters, I don't care. (laughs) But this relationship with Jesus Christ is eternal. There's a wedding coming, a uniting between us and him, and it's like it should be the foremost thing on our minds. We should walk around like an engaged woman does with her engagement ring and and says, look at this, look at this. Oh, here's a picture of him in case you want to know. That's what we should be doing with Jesus Christ. I've come to know Jesus He's coming back for me. You can know him too. Where was I? (laughs) Spiritually, there's too many people that are unsubmissive to God, as you're hearing from me strongly today. Carnal, fleshly, just show-offs, looking for some way to impress people. Unsubmissive because God made a mistake. Surely put me in the wrong place. Maybe they're counterfeiting like they were doing with tongues in the Corinthian church. Faking it. Or just idle. I'm just going gonna, gonna to wait. Somewhere along the way, somebody will appreciate me. We're so-and-so. Aren't they good at? Let's get them in here. Is that how you approach it? Or do we approach it on our knees because God's in charge of the body? Biggest lesson God ever taught me was at Multnomah. I was responsible, I just had men's fellowship, I was only a liver. But I was in charge of that, and that took over the parent visitation weekend. I didn't know how big that was. I was too ignorant to know I should be worried. It involved the whole school and hundreds, if not thousands of people coming in to visit, and you're responsible to organize all of that. And and I had the foolish idea that all I needed to do was to fast for the first time in my life, and to spend the day crying out to God to direct me, not, not to little things, but to specific individuals to put in charge of the various committees or whatever you want to call them that were going to carry this thing out. Then once that was set up, I just helped to organize it. After it was over, God went out of his way to tell me through somebody. I had a person walk up to me and they said, this was the most organized, useful, You and they said, and they came around and said it, you picked just the right people to do each one of the jobs what did that teach me it it wasn't my administrative skills that did anything it was the fact that i had taken time to cry out to god and to appeal to him to give me direction and the individuals that he put in charge of that i learned something that day we're putting out too much human effort to do things we put out too many calls when jesus wanted a worker how did he get him Generally for salvation, he he called out to everybody. But when he wanted a disciple, how did he get him? He asked, he said, you follow me. Matthew, the tax collector, what is wrong with you? Judas, you know he's never going to even come to Christ. Why are you picking him to serve you? Why is he selected or elected or chosen to serve you? And you see that all through scripture. You understand exactly what his role was. We don't we can't figure it out on our own, folks. We're trying too hard. And then what do we get when it doesn't work? Frustrated, irritated, agitated, whatever the tateds can I get in there? We pull back, we fold our arms, so I'm frustrated, I'm tired, somebody else can do it. And then we quit and then maybe we leave the church. Where'd all that come from? Didn't come from God. It came from our personal expectations of what we thought was going to be the best. Instead of crying out to God and saying, God, what is the best? You lead me. You show me. And it isn't like five minutes on a a Sunday afternoon. It's a lifestyle to pray without ceasing, to be devoted to prayer. This is what he's trying to do with the body. He's trying to help us realize you're not spectators. I try to tell you that on a regular basis. But if you're not even reading your Bible for the message I'm going to preach on, you're spectators. You're looky loose. You're coming in and going, I wonder what he's going to say today. Who he's going to irritate. What toes he's going to step on. Or some newfangled doctrine that he's going to create. And then you walk away from a boring message and you go, That was boring. I could have gone to that church or that church. Maybe they were controversial about something. Or maybe they would have made me feel better. It's not about me. I don't come to church to be served. Just like Jesus did in Mark 10, 45. He came to serve, and you go, well, that's fine, but I don't want to have the second half. What was the second half of that verse? He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's where I draw the line. Just because I'm in the body doesn't mean I have to die. Of all the places God could have given cancer to, he picked my place. Now they're going to cut me out. They're going to take me home early. I heard for the first time on the radio this week again, listening a lot while I study, Johnny Erickson taught us sharing her testimony and how bad of a sinner she was before she broke her neck. She said, I was on a course, bad course. If you don't know her, uh, quadriplegic, broke her neck at, I think right after high school, so maybe 18 years old, uh, and and was paralyzed, and asked her friends to kill her, kill her, kill her, kill her for a while until she finally realized they weren't going to do that. But she said, I was on the wrong course, and that's how God decided to stop me. Volunteers, you really want to have a great spiritual life? How many many out here say, God, break my neck? You don't have to do it. It'll be a a rock underneath the water that you hit just right and snap it. Or it'll be a car wreck when you're driving home today. Somebody hits you. It's not your fault. And what are you going to say when all that happens and you wake up in the hospital? Why me? Or you could say, biblically, thank you, God. Because you're going to cause this to work together for good. You're going to limit my life and take away all of my dreams and aspirations and redirect them, and I'm going to see people by the tens, by the hundreds, maybe by the thousands come to Christ because they're going to come to me and say, how do you do that? They're going to ask me for the reason of the hope within me because I'm doing something that they know they couldn't do. How are you doing that? And you say, well, I'm a super saint. You know, I mean, it's just yeah, my upbringing helped, strong parents, disabled. Is that how you're going to say it? No. Because we're all a bunch of babies. We don't want broken necks. And the the next cell says, why me? Why'd, Why'd you pick on me? Are we really submitted to God? Did you really come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and hand the keys over to Him? To your life, your future? Maybe not. Maybe that's part of the problem. And yet you're critical and you're saying, boy, the church doesn't work, a bunch of hypocrites, or nobody cares down there. You know why they don't care? Because you don't care. What are their names? Not from you. Anthony and Rachel. Thank you very much. But it isn't just the new people that you can talk to and you say, maybe they'll never come back. It's the regulars that are here that you don't even know. If I were to give you a list to hand out to you, and I'm out of time already, but if I were to give you a quiz and just tell you this person was a rocket scientist, this person was a, and you're gone, and I would ask you, just fill in their names. Just tell me who they are in the church. I'd give you a really good list, and it would, you would be flabbergasted. Go figure it out for yourself. I don't need to make up a list. You need to get to know people. You need to recognize the body as a unit that works together, and you're not going to know everybody in detail, but you're going to find out. Look for the loners. This is what I do as a pastor. If I'm standing in the back and I notice somebody sitting by themselves when the service is over, oh, you don't know what's gone through my little mind. But the first chance I get it's to sit down with them. I don't know where that comes from. Hopefully, it's out of a love for God. But he's trying to wrap this up. And he says here as he closes off, 22, on the contrary, and I recovered all that, 24, but God is so composed. He is so mingled, commingled, mixed with, blended together the body, giving more abundant honor or value to that member which lacked, which fell short, was inferior, that came up short. Reason that there should be no division in the body. No schisms, no division, no separation of any kind, but in strong contrast, Allah, that the members should have the same care, the serious concern, their thoughts are occupied with each other, that you pray for one another, that you share prayer requests. You come back the next week, as Marvin and and Cece do so well, and they ask. And it's not because they have great memories. They might have great memories. But they write it down. And it matters to them. They have serious concern. You give a prayer request to them, they're going to pester the living daylights out of you until it's answered. Maybe that's why you don't want to share with them. I don't really want an answer. I just want to complain. Sorry, I'm kind of off, off the beat here. But, or on the beat. But he says, if and if one member suffers, whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I skipped over most of my notes. (laughs) A healthy body is responsive to the cells. I need a volunteer. Not really. I like to take a needle and have somebody walk up, and I'll hit one of your cells. Really sharp needle. Boop. You tell me what your body says. Now I'm going to hit 27 of them as I go deep. Err through the layer of cells, now I'm going to hit, yeah, muscle, bone, ligaments. How do you feel? Stop it. Because I got a hold of your one hand, the other one came up and whacked me across the face. Because I care about my body and I don't like pain. One little cell. Is that how we're treating each other? Is there a cell in this body that is feeling pain and nobody's responding? It better not be because you don't care. It may be just because you're ignorant. We want to change that. How did I start off my message today? You should never open the Word of God without recognizing some changes in your life. If you're serious with God, you will make those adjustments. Little by little, you'll make the adjustments. You'll learn how to write names down or to memorize Scripture or to reach out to people because you hate it, you're... You're in your own little bubble. I don't like talking to people. I never know what to say. And what you do is what everybody does. You simply ask questions. You don't have to talk. What did I do this morning? I asked both of you what you did. Well, I asked him, and then you were able to share what you did as well. How'd you hear about us? I just asked them questions. They talked. They didn't tell me to go away, so I kept asking questions. (laughs) And then I picked on them the whole service. Hopefully someday Anthony and Rachel will say, That was life changing. That brought us into a church that's real, that's vibrant, that cares, that's reaching out, and there are no looky loos. There's no spectators. Where are your disciples? I'll tell you where they are. If you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're not going to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the problem. Start with God. Start on your knees, cry out to him this week. Give him at least five minutes. And then figure out who isn't here. Where are the other cells, as I say to you regularly? Reach out to them. Don't pester them. I, I said that one Sunday, and somebody got pestered so bad they were. They said, don't ever bring up my name again. <laughs> no, just call them up and find out how they, and they said, they are doing fine. Great. Just praying for you, which we'll do right now. This prayer. Just pray. Father, we are grateful for your honesty, for your commitment, for the intimacy where you know everything about us, and yet you don't pull away. You don't cut us off. When we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. May we have that kind of love for each other, and as we scatter today, that love for the world, that it's not our comfort that we're seeking, it's theirs. It's not our present enjoyment that we're seeking. It's their e- eternal relationship with you. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thank you for the reminder. Help it to not just be words. May we live it out as you deepen our relationship with yourself. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.